at the end, there's a boat that's leaving soon for New York and Porgy and Bess. Mm -hmm. Hitting that B flat at La Scala, that to me was like a highlight of me, of my career in terms Uh as a singer, to think of my B flat up there with all those greats. You know, and and thank God it was a glorious B flat. <laughs> <laughs> hey, this is Achim Novak, executive coach and host of the My Fourth Act podcast. If life is a five act play, how will you spend your fourth act? I have conversations with exceptional humans who have created bold and unexpected fourth acts. Listen and be inspired. And please rate us and subscribe on whatever platform you are listening on. Let's get started. I am so very happy to welcome Larry Marshall to the My Fourth Act podcast. Larry has had and continues to have an extraordinary career as a Broadway performer with 15 Broadway productions under his belt. His Broadway debut occurred in 1968 in the iconic musical Hair. Most recently, Larry was a cast member of the acclaimed musical Waitress, which he performed on Broadway and also on national tour. Larry has had many turns as both performer and director with the opera Corgi and Bess. He has toured in the show nationally, internationally, and on Broadway. He eventually earned Tony and Drama Desk Award nominations for his portrayal of sporting life in the Houston Grand Opera's production of Porgy and Bess. Larry's other Broadway appearances include Two Gentlemen of Verona, The Full Monty, The Color Purple, and others. And he has performed on stage with legends like Meryl Streep and Sting, and I want to talk about both of those people. Marshall's film roles include playing Cap Calloway in The Cotton Club, in Simon Zelodis and Jesus Christ Superstar. It is such an honor and privilege to have this conversation with you. Hello, Larry. Hello, how are you? <laughs> I'm well. Before we talk a little bit about some of the highlights of your career, but also about where you are today at this stage in your life as a very accomplished performer and talk about, so what's next? What I was thinking about is, when you were a young boy or teenager growing up, did everybody say to you, gosh, you're going to be a singer, you have this amazing voice, or did you have some other thoughts about what you wanted to do? I um, didn't have that uh, kind of, those kind of accolades at all. I um, was joined a um, boy's choir, soprano, as a kid in the fourth grade. From there, got interested in doo-wop. And the first inkling of that, uh, this is what I wanted to do, was when I heard Frankie Lyman and the teenagers doing Oh, yes. Fall in Love. I bought the 45, the 78 uh, at the time. I would carry it with me. I would go to friends' houses. I would play it all the time. I mean, it was I was just fascinated by that record and that group and Frankie Lyman. So we uh, started uh, fooling around with guys in the neighborhood. We would uh, put together a group. We would run down to the subway station where there was an echo and try to work out harmonies while that and while passengers are running back and forth trying to get. 
we are, or we would go in somebody's hallway and sing. It was that kind of thing. Then from there, I guess I, when I, I went to a high school in Queens for a year, and that's where I met the baseball player Roy Campanella, who used to play for the Brooklyn Dodgers. So sadly, you know, this is where the German and didn't grow up in this country go. I vaguely know the name, but it has no other meaning to me, Larry. Yeah. yeah, well, he was a famous, and he's a Hall of Fame catcher. He was uh, with the Brooklyn Dodgers, and of course, they moved to L.A., got into a car accident and was crippled. But his stepson, David Campanella, was in uh, school. So we formed a group called the Delcords, asked me to join, and I did. And uh, we uh, did... Um, the Martha Ray Telethon, who Martha Ray was a comedian. I yeah. remember Martha Ray, so Martha Ray I know. And uh, she had the telethon before Jerry Lewis. So we did that. I'm curious, how does a group of guys in Queens doing doo-wop end up on Martha Ray's show? Like, how do you go from here to there? How did that happen? Well, that happened. Uh, basically, we, I guess, you know, the interest, because we had somebody like the name of Campanella right, uh, behind us, George Kafkas, who was what, the baritone, his mother, basically, was kind of like our manager there for a while. Uh, we, um, they had connections. We don't know. We just went along for the ride, basically, because we were just happy to make the music because we were all still in school. We would do these uh, Mothery Telethon. And then it looked like uh, we were it, one of the things, attractions of our, our group at that time was that we're talking about 1959, you know, around that time. And our group was one, I think, was one of the first integrated groups. There was uh, three blacks, two whites. And it was, uh, we had a lot of interest in this. Unfortunately, after we did the Martha Ray Telethon, then David did the Tonight Show interview and advertising the group. So we watched that, you know, it was just David for that because of he was Campanella's uh, son. The next morning, my best friend who was in the group also, Al, Al Jihau, called me up and said, Larry, go get the newspaper, the Daily News, and look on the back. And I go, why? He said, go, just go do that. Mm -hmm. Now, the page was basically... And the Daily News was like uh, advertised sports, right? So I go out, I get the paper, I look on the back page, and lo and behold, there is a picture of a paddy wagon. And looking out of the paddy wagon is David, guy that was our uh, valet. And it turns out that David had broken into this store, stole cigarettes. Why he did that, he had a check on him. But it was one of these things where he was kind of like very being very rebellious. Part of at time there was the, the gang wars that were going on. He wanted to be all that. So that kind of messed that up. So the group broke up. We put together our own group, uh, Algie and I, called the Sierras. And then we uh, started the you know, same thing. And during those days, you used to do live auditions. Yeah. And we must have done about 23 auditions for different record companies. And we had gotten this, uh, our manager, Joe D'Angelo. And uh, he was setting this up and setting this audition up. And finally, we landed an audition for uh, George Goldner, which was like, wow, that's really big because yeah. George had Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers. Yeah. 
And then we recorded for his uh, label called Gold Disc. That was a great thing. We walking down the street, all of a sudden we heard our song playing on the radio. And it was like, wow. How, how old were you at the time when that happened? Well, when I started with David, I was 15. Mm-hmm. When we had our own uh, hit after, I'm um, not own hit, but made our own record. It must have been, I think I was like 19 when that happened. How do you, because I'm hearing doo-wop, but I also know that you went to the New England Conservatory of Music, yeah. which I think of like, gosh, that's like really serious, classical, different kind of singing. How do you get from doo-wop and yeah. singing on the street corners and the subways and well, to there? Well, how that happened, like I said, I um, the group, the Sierras, that was the name of the second group, we had a you know, girl uh, lead who decided that she didn't want to do that. I decided I wanted to know something more about music. Mm-hmm. I did. I grew up a Catholic. I grew up in a boys' choir. So in high schools, um, after I left Queens, I went to another school called Immaculata. I grew up singing in the church. But you hear a lot of people just talk about. You know, I grew up singing in the church. Well, the church I grew up singing, we had Gregorian chant. Nice. <laughs> Beautiful. My goodness. You know, yeah, also the classics, uh, Palestrina, and, um, you know, the masses, bird four and five part, four, three and four, five part masses, all of these classical background music. So that's, I had a kind of a foundation in that. I left the group, went to Xavier University first in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Xavier had been a, it was a Catholic school, but they had them been doing opera. Uh, for like 35 years, had a collaboration at that time with the New Orleans uh, Opera Company. Nice. First opera that I really ever saw I was in, playing Gaston and La Traviata. Ah. Then from there, I um, decided I wanted to come up north. And so I applied for the New England Conservatory got in. In fact, one of my audition pieces was singing a Gregorian chant. So that's how I got to New England. Yeah. I'm going to attempt the impossible right now because you have such an incredible career and many stories to tell. I'm going to just take us to different periods in your life because I also want to talk about where you are today as a performer who is, continues to be on Broadway, who's 80 years old. And that's interesting to me. But, but you know, I'm fascinated. Your first Broadway show was Hair. And yeah. I have to chuckle because we just talked about Gregorian chants, and there you are doing Hair on Broadway. Yeah. And that's such a time capsule for me. It's the late 60s. It's hippie. It's freedom. The show was radical because it was nudity. For somebody who doesn't hasn't seen hair or doesn't know hair from your experience as a performer being on Broadway and hair, what stands out for you most? Like, what do you remember? I must say that hair, the songs were really just so well crafted. Mm -hmm. Then the idea of being caught up into this peace, love, all of that was going on. I must say I came basically because at the same time that I was doing hair, for a lot of people, it was the lifestyle and whatnot. For me, it was a job. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Because I came out of, for me, for my lifetime, I would have been more of the beatnik 
as part, as opposed to the hippie. I mean, I was into like being like, you know, kind of laid back, cool, where this was like, out just explosion. But as you say that letter, I'm thinking, because I saw here as a teenager when I lived in Berlin, Germany, before yeah. I came to this country in German language, it was yeah. a huge success. But if I remember correctly, the end is almost like this happening where the audience meets the actors. And, and I think it was like one big party, which doesn't happen on Broadway musical these days anymore. Yeah. So what was that like, especially okay. since you're saying that you were maybe yeah. Yeah. We more reclusive? Yeah, we started out. At, well, it took me a while to like get into the flow of it. Because when I first got there, I asked them, I said, OK, where's the book? <laughs> what are you talking about? I said the book, so you know I can follow my track. And jokingly, he said, "Oh, you must think this is a professional gig, <laughs> you know." And I, I started laughing about it. I mean, you started out in the audience, uh, meeting people, getting into the mood, and all of a sudden the bell, the chime would happen, and everybody go in slow motion. And I remember I played a couple of roles. I started out as HUD, and I did um, Burger. I remember sitting in front of this woman and going, hey, lady, how about a handout? And, you know, the whole bit that you have to do. And, well, she got so upset, she started beating me with her, her, her program, right? Well, at the end, she was the first one up on the stage. Uh-huh. It kind of changed people. Yeah. They didn't know what to expect. You know, and then after the flow of it and getting into what we were saying, intensity of the message of the wrongs that were going on at the time, the Vietnam War, and then yeah. you know, got drafted three times. So, I mean, I know what all that was about. But it kind of really, it lifted people up yeah. with joy. And they would get up on the stage and the stage would be jam-packed. And they would just be dancing with the band. It was fabulous that way. But I appreciate I you taking us there because most people who go to a Broadway show today or a musical don't have that experience yeah. that you just described because the shows are just a little different. I'm going to ask you an impossible question because you. I want to take us to some specific experiences. But if you had to just pick one or two moments from your very big career and say, this is a moment that I remember as like a highlight, a moment where I wow, go, wow, I can't believe I am here in this place, in this moment with these people from your professional career. Are there a moment or two that stand out where you go, wow, I can't believe I was there and this happened? Yeah, there's, I mean, the one that comes to me right off was uh, at the end of... Um, there's a boat that's leaving soon for New York and Porgy and Bess. Mm -hmm. Hitting that B flat at La Scala. I was, that to me was like a highlight of me, of my career in terms uh -huh. as a singer. To think of my B flat up there with all those greats. And thank God it was a glorious B flat. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm happy for you and the audience that it was so. Yeah, no. Just the idea of playing La Scala, you know, being at the conservatory. Also, playing the Met the first time with the Bernstein Mass. That was it. But not, well, funny situation with the Bernstein Mass, because the my solo uh, was uh, the gospel. God said, let there be light, you know, that mm -hmm. the way it was staged and how I was doing it, Bernstein used to come to me all the time and say, Larry, please, 
it's a mask. You can't get applause at the end. I said, I'm not doing it. <laughs> I'm just, but that to me, it stands out. There was a couple of things that stood out with me with uh, things that I did that I just really have been really privileged to have taken part of. Yeah. The mass is one of them, you know, putting that together. I'm wondering, as you're talking, you tell that wonderful little moment with Bernstein about the applause. Are audiences in a place like La Scala and the Met different from a Broadway audience, or is an audience an audience regardless of where you are? I think basically an audience, and I feel as an audience is an audience. There's that appreciation that's the same as on Broadway. Some, I mean, it depends on the particular play or musical that you're doing, but the applause is the same. The opera behind an aria, if it's glorious, the people bravo, they break out, they clap. It's the same thing, you know, in Broadway. I will say the difference was doing it in uh, Japan. <laughs> How was it different? Because you used to sing a bam, blap, hit it by, and the audience goes like this. In Japan, you go boom, blap, at least at that time, you hit it by, and it'd be like crickets. And they held their applause until the very end. You know, they just observed the whole play, that uh, musical that was going on. It seemed to later to change to be more Western. And I went back with uh, Xanadu, that they seemed to have loosened up, but it used to be very stiff. 70s and 80s and I just in the then the 2000s they kind of uh, loosen up and I don't I guess that's had to do with being exposed more or maybe traveling more the younger generation you know having traveled and uh, experience uh, theater in other countries I just want to spot check two of your credits and then we're going to talk about touring and your life right now but as a German fellow who ended up in theater you know one of the giants in German theater is Bertolt Brecht yeah. And you ended up doing Mother Courage, Central Park, and the Delacorte, which is an amazing place, with Meryl Streep, who many consider one of the greatest actresses of all time. Yeah. So I'm going to ask a really stupid question, but it's really on my mind. When you do a show with somebody like Meryl Streep, who has a, who's just has, it's just a, a great acknowledged talent. Do you act differently with somebody of that stature? Does she make you feel comfortable? Is it just another performer? What's the dynamic like when you end up working with somebody who has that that kind of status? I um, had all the respect in the world. And I um, had maybe one scene with her in Mother Courage as the farmer. But she was amazing to watch. I've watched her build her character. I watch her with her build her mannerisms. For me, it was a learning experience mm -hmm. watching her. I watched her the way she would walk. I could see her trying to feel the character out in rehearsal, trying to get in the walk. The mannerisms, the way maybe she laughed and little idioms here and there. And it was fascinating to watch. I am sure. And I'm thinking Mother Courage is a very primal character. It's a larger than life character to see somebody like Meryl Streep figure out how, yeah. how to inhabit that part. Yeah. And she would imagine how interesting that would be for you as somebody who gets to act with her. Yeah. No. Yeah. She would dig into it. She would search for it and she would just uh, get rough, like as opposed to the used to seeing her some other way. So it was quite an experience to watch and to play off of her, but she was amazing.
a word from your sponsor. That's me. I invite you to go to the website associated with this podcast, www.myfourthact.com. You will find other equally inspiring conversation with great humans. And you will also learn more about the, the My Fourth Act Mastermind Groups, where cool people figure out how to chart their own fourth acts. Please check it out. And now back to the conversation. Now, the other Brecht piece you did was Three Penny Opera with Sting, who was like amazing. And a part of again, what I think about is like my only reference, like it is, I, I remember being on stage when I was very young for two weeks with Rudolf Noriev, age with this mega star. And there's a whole experience when you do the curtain call and the ways of adulation, which I know were not for me, they were for Nuriyev, but there's an adulation on a level that I had never known before and you feel it. So when you're with somebody like Sting in a show like that, in a big show, what stands out for you from that experience? Well, we it was a lot. We had John Dexter directing. Mm -hmm. It was a lot of work because it John basically he kept changing things around. So you were constantly on edge trying to figure out where this piece is going. And it was off it was more strain on me because I had been offered my first pouring and best at the Met. This was mm -hmm. 1989. And I was going to do it, but then I turned it down to do Three Penny Opera. Mm -hmm. to, I thought it would be a, a better chance because you, you're always looking for that. The Met was only nine performances. I'm looking at the possible of a year. And that's a wonderful dilemma to have. Do I do Porgy and Bess at the Met or do I do Three Penny Opera with Sting? I say that's not a bad problem to be in, just saying. Well, the reason why I say that, uh, Bob Barad, who was our stage manager, who was my first stage manager when I got into the business, we were there for, I don't know, maybe about five, six, almost a week, I think about a week, without a director. So I asked Bob, I said, you know, where's John? And he said, well, he's taking the QE2 across. I said, oh. I said, is he afraid of flying? That's something. He said, no. I said, what? And he looked around, make sure nobody was listening. He says, he hasn't read the script yet. And I was going, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't turn down the Met and I'm going to be in this mess. He came in and he, and you know, at the time, John, I guess, you know, John was really ill. He felt like he didn't know exactly what to do with this piece. It was supposed to be at first all acoustic, acoustical, uh, no amplifications, you know, this real raw. And that didn't work. And then he had the sets. He didn't like the sets. He then decided we should all be like homeless kind of people in uh, cardboard boxes and things like And the set, he broke down the set and it was like he would crack. And nothing seemed to work. And everybody was sitting around trying to figure out what's going on. And so Sting had a birthday, and we were in D.C., and closed down this restaurant. It was um, myself, Alan Epstein, Sting, Georgia Brown. I forgot who else was there. We were sitting with Dexter. And John <laughs> said, I have come up with the perfect solution to make this work. And, and Georgia goes, all right, Governor. What, you know, 
Unfortunately, I went to sleep before writing it down, and I can't remember a thing. And it was like, <laughs> oh, no, you know. It was like that. And then the headline in the Washington Post, it was the roughest ever seen of a headline. It said, three penny ain't worth two cents. Ouch. <laughs> you know, that was my experience with Three Penny Opera. Yeah. Having been a director and an actor, I... I can only imagine how frustrating and challenging that would have been. You, you told it beautifully, Larry. Oh, oh, God, it was just amazing. It was amazing. And the other thing that, you know, you think, Kurt Vile Foundation, they wouldn't let us, I guess they didn't like Sting's voice or whatever. They wouldn't let us do a cast album, which probably would have sold, which probably would have brought interest to the piece itself. Yeah, It was a lot of problems. Thank God the Met called me back for the next year. (laughs) (laughs) Since you just talked about being on the road, and I know part of your career has been doing tours. Sometimes it means breaking in a new show, but you've done national tours. I imagine, for me, I'm putting myself in your shoes, I think being on the road is really, really hard. And you can be on the road for a long time, but I don't want to project that onto you. What's it like for you to be on the road, especially for months on end? Yeah, I think the reason I did it, it was fun in the beginning. You know, you're going places, you're seeing towns, seeing cities, you know, that you've been to and you're you're being appreciated, you know, in particular shows that you're doing. I just, when Waitress came along, I auditioned. They uh, had a 14, not a 14-week tour, had a 14-month tour. Wow. I said, well, maybe this is one of the last chances I get to see America. Mm -hmm. I uh, wanted to see how it changed. I signed up for it. What happened was first uh, they had me do New York because... Dakin, the the original guy, was leaving. So I did it for like three months on New York, and then I went out on the road. It was rough. I think what makes uh, the road work for you is that if you have projects that you have that you can work on in your downtime, because it's just so much of a city you can see. You've been in a over three-decade relationship with a wonderful woman, performer, gifted singer, in many ways, Jenny Notis. Yeah, who yeah. also has done some international touring, but you live in, together in Staten Island. So for people who are not in show business, who are listening to us, like, how do you make a relationship work when your spouse yeah. is also a really exceptional performer? You both take off for long periods of time. Like, how does that work out? Well, first, we stay in constant contact with one another. We will talk in the morning. At nighttime, we'll talk again. Uh, Thank God there's a thing called Zoom now. So that's basic. And, you know, we understand what each other, what our skills are and what we do. So you have to give room for people to be who they are and do what they do best. And that I've been fortunate to have uh, someone like that in my corner who understands that. Yeah, It can be hard. And then she comes out in time. Um, we'll try to do a couple of days here and there because she has her own responsibilities. Because at a lot of times, as you know, she's an educator. We'll be uh, running a program in the school system. She's also the musical director for St. Mark's Church. So she right. has that. It's rough, but we work it out because we want to. Now, you mentioned several times in our conversation 
about auditioning and auditioning is part of an, a performer's life. It was very funny when you and I had breakfast a few weeks in New York and you had just auditioned for a show. And then I just realized, and I hope it's okay that so you turned 80 this year. You have an incredible longevity and you are continuing to work, which is stunning. What's your relationship to going on auditions? Because you've been going on auditions for what, 60 years, 70 years, yeah, like yeah. a long time, right? Yeah. And I still get nervous. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, you know, everybody wants to uh, be accepted, but you realize that there are some roles that you, because, you know, your agents, they'll send you out for this and that. I it was a long time ago when I first started out, I had an agent with a Hesseltine and Baker who would read the scripts first and th see if it's something that they felt was good. Yeah. But that seems to change. You know, yeah. now it's like people just send you out, send you out, send you out. And you look at it and you have to like, I've got them to the point whereby they will say, uh, well, let's see if you like this, if you want to go up for this, yeah. as opposed to the other way around. But yeah, you go out and you audition and you um, try to do your best. I'm constantly nervous about it. Because I try to, a lot of people audition with uh, the script and read, but I try to go in and have everything memorized so that I can be free to do what well, I I'm wondering, again, this is, I'm channeling my former theater director. So when Larry Marshall walks in somewhere to audition, I mean, people know he sang at the Met, he sang at La Scala, he has done Sporting Life, got a Tony nomination. Do you, so they know you have this truly impressive career behind you do you feel like people treat you differently do you feel like it matters do people acknowledge your past or it's irrelevant they don't give me any special deals you know what i'm saying they yeah. will be respectful and it also depends on who you're auditioning for there's a new crop of people will look at something and it's just on the page there are other people who have i've auditioned for who have seen me so that's a different thing altogether. But most of the time, it's very respectful. And they acknowledge uh, that I have a track record, <laughs> let's say. I'm curious, as you look to your next decade, and you have to think about, these are some things I look forward to. These are things I like to continue to do. These are things I like to do more of in my life or less of. Like, do you think about the future that way? Maybe you don't. I think when we were talking, you know, put together a project on Burt Williams, who was a blackface comedian. And, of course, the blackface is something that we are very against it in terms of uh, what it represents. Right. I, going through his life and realizing that uh, there's more to him than that blackface, that was just something that, for the times that he was in, that uh, he had to do in order to work, work at a level that was uh, afforded him. There was, in his songs, there were some things that were just so kind of true about human nature. I just, and put in a very funny way and with a comedic style. I started listening to a number of his songs and got very interested and said, I would really like to do these songs of his bring them forward not you know to appreciate who he was not mm -hmm. to bring these back and make them hits or whatever that kind of stuff but to let folks know that this was a man who opened so many doors 
for us, for our, you know, the later generations, to be able to develop our craft and go forward. He uh, really was at the top of so many things. He was the first in a full-length musical on Broadway, starred in that. In 1903, he started delving into recordings early in 1896. Mm -hmm. He was like really the first uh, Black recording artist. He was like the first that was, you know, was popular with Columbia Records. He started out with uh, RCA Records, uh, with Victor Records. He They kept his catalog around long after he died. He recorded over 100 songs. He also wrote. Uh, he was also the first Black performer star to be presented in a film in 1914. There's so many things. He was the first Black artist, and I'm trying to think who else, but he was the first Black artist to headline at the Ziegfeld Follies. And of course, and there were like restrictions there. He, uh, there was sort of understood that he was to not ever appear on the stage with a female performer at any time, and that he was to stay in his dressing room. It was time for his appearance, and that he was not to take any Southern tours for fear of causing a riot from seeing a mixed cast. I mean, there was a lot of stuff that he had to go through. As I'm listening to you tell the story, I first of all, I feel your passion for this project, which is palpable. But I'm also thinking, wow, that's um, what an amazing historical introduction you offer to to someone that people don't really know about. Who do you perform this for? Who's your audience for this? I'm going to be doing it for a theater group called Out of the Box Theater in uh, February. I'm supposed to go and do it in California outside of uh, San Diego with a group that presents uh, performers. And it's supposed to be, I think, a collaboration with uh, San Diego State University. And what I'd like to do, I would like to take this around to colleges. I'd like to educate, and especially Black colleges, mm -hmm. because I think uh, this is a person that we need to know in terms of our history. If you look back, and let's say if you were to give younger Larry some advice about life based on what you have learned, and this is not to change anything or rewrite the journey of life, but just based on what you know now, Larry, if you could whisper in younger Larry's ear, what would you say to him? Well, as far as I would say, I wish I had studied more. I think I was frivolous in a lot of ways with my time. I... um Went to, yeah, the New England Conservatory of Music and studied. I, looking back, I probably should have gone to the Boston Conservatory of Music because there they have a theater department. They have dance there. And I never took any dancing lessons. I just picked up everything I could. Yeah. I would have spent more time on the keyboard, really learning how to play rather than just tinkling around. I mean, there are things whereby... I just really needed to have been more serious. I was always looking for the performer as opposed mm -hmm. to having the substance there. I never took any really any kind of like heavy duty acting lessons and getting into it because I came out of the conservatory. Which yeah. was, and next thing you know, I'm just going and I'm getting jobs at that time. I just uh, that's what I would say. Yeah, I would study more. I would be more focused. That's such wonderful wisdom. Before we say goodbye, um, I would imagine there are listeners who are thinking, wow, I 
where can I find some of Larry's music? Where has he recorded? What albums is he on? What past albums might you be on? Where can people find your singing? Okay, uh, well, I'm on the Houston Grand Opera, Porgy and Bess, also on uh, Play On, which was a Broadway show that was taking, um, using Duke Ellington's music. That was in 1997. I would say uh, those are the two things. Those are two really good places to start. Thank you so much for, well, they're really the gift of this conversation, and I just celebrate you and the really extraordinary life you have had and are continuing to have. So this was a pleasure. Thank you. Hey, thank you so much. Like what you heard? Please go to myfourthact.com and subscribe to receive my updates on upcoming episodes. Please also subscribe to us on the platform of your choice. Rate us, give us a review. And let us all create some magical fourth acts together. Ciao.